Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. I'm going to ask you this morning to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Colossians. The book of Colossians chapter 1, and we will begin our reading in verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Thank you, praise team. I don't think that was on the list to start with, but word got out that Today's message is entitled, What Child Is This? Who is this that is in the manger? And we're going to take a look at some words that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 1. What child is this? Well, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What child is this? He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and Gaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. William Dix, D-I-X, in 1856, took a song or or a tune from a secular song. It was said to have had a haunting melody, you can almost hear that in it, and he penned the words, what child is this? I believe that one of our greatest challenges today is to understand exactly who God is and who Jesus Christ is and how Jesus and God are one And how all of that relates to us and why he came to this earth. What was the need for all of that? And how do we have a relationship with him? Those are just fundamental questions. But there is nothing in the world more important than that we understand those things. Just exactly what child is this? Who is this that's lying in the manger? Is he like God? Is he sent from God? Is he somebody God created or is he God? Those are things that you and I, I know what we believe, but but can we articulate it? And can we do it with conviction? Is it something that, 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 that we're sheepish about? Or is it something that we're willing to, as Lottie Moon was 
willing to go and die for to tell the world that they can have hope because God has come and reconciled this world to himself through his blood on the cross. You can tell Paul when he writes here, he's up to something. It's like walking up on a conversation and you're hearing things and you understand just by what is being said that there's something that's going on before this. There's a lot of details being given that might not would make sense normally and, and it's odd that they would be in here. But we, just in the verses that we read, we can tell that Paul is addressing some things that the people at Colossae believed and thought that just were not true. And he's trying to clarify that for them. There was a group within the church, in the early church, called the Gnostics. Spelled with a silent G. Some would argue that, well, no, they don't come along until about 150. And it's not full-blown maybe until them. Some call it proto-Gnosticism. That's not a hill I'm going to die on, but we know that the thinking of the Gnostic, and we'll call them Christians, but we use that term only because Gnosticism came from within the church. There wasn't a group of Gnostics that moved from out west somewhere and started a cult in town. No, this thinking came from within the church. And basically what had happened was the more intellectual types, you've probably met a few of them, but the more intellectual types, the thinkers, the, those who lived in deep thought, those who thought seriously that the gospel is a bit raw for us. I, I just it's, it's too elementary and, and there's just more to it. And what they did is they took a lot of the teachings of the Greek cultists, the, those who had uh, uh, were Hellenistic in their theology and, and thought of gods as being those untouchable things that cared nothing about physical nature or this earth or anything like that that were totally untouchable. They took that and mixed it with Christianity. And, and I can tell you what they got in the end was a disaster. It happens every time you try to do that. Dr. Vance Havner used to talk about having a glass that's full of milk with just a teaspoon of arsenic. He said, most of it's good for you, and most of it you could argue is fine. But there is just enough poison there to kill you. And it's the same way with heresy every single time. Truth mixed with heresy equals heresy, and it does so every single time. Now, what was the whole point of all of this? Well, there was some merit for these Gnostics in thinking this way because one of the things that the Greek people did, they believed that the gods really cared nothing about the physical universe, that they were more um, into the mythological, spiritualized kind of thing. So they really thought they cared nothing about matter, and, and, and it created this thing called dualism. And basically, the way it played out in practical living was the Gnostics would say that, okay, I have a physical body here, and it might do bad things, but there is a spiritual me that is totally separate from the physical me, and the spiritual me is not at all responsible for what the physical me does. It would be like, you know, you and I getting in an argument, and me hauling off and knocking your teeth out and, and then looking at you like, wow, boy, the physical me, sorry about that. I hate it you met him, but, uh, you know, that's just how he is. He's been that way a while. And if you think about it in our world today, boy, that's a notion that's it's survived a long time. It's almost as if you look in our world today, and we might not call it Gnosticism. I understand that. That's probably a word you don't hear, but I'll bet you I know some things you do hear from time to time. You'll hear about people who have tons of issues in their life, and their life is a purity mess, and somebody will come along, though, and go, well, but you know, I know he's a good person. No, he's not a good person. He's a meth head, and he took his check that 
should have fed his kids and he bought drugs with it and he's thrown his life away and he's ruined another marriage and he's ruining other people's lives. Or maybe he killed someone or robbed a bank or, or raped someone. You, you, but somebody somewhere for certain is going to look at that person and go, well, but you know, I know he has a good heart. No, he doesn't have a good heart. He has a terrible heart because he is a sinner. Now, this is what has happened. This is why it is so uh, addictive, uh, this, this kind of thinking, even in our churches today. Because some people would say, okay, well, so you Christians are dividing people into two groups. Some have wicked hearts, and some have good hearts. But see, you would be wrong about that. And that's where the misunderstanding comes in. Because the Word of God says that we all have wicked hearts. All of our hearts are wicked, desperately wicked, that no one can understand them. That's what the Bible teaches. We all have wicked hearts. We're not trying to say, okay, well, he's a sinner and this one's not, or, or that those people are bad and we are good. That is a lie. And presenting it that way just leads people astray. It makes you look like a bigot. It makes you look like you're a chauvinist. It makes you look like a sexist, a racist, or whatever. It makes you look terrible in the eyes of the world. And I'll tell you what has happened. In a lot of our churches, people are so afraid of even looking like that, we have quit preaching the truth. No, we don't have good hearts. We have wicked hearts. And Paul tells them that here at Colossae that you have problems. You, man, you were alienated from God and you had no hope whatsoever. Now, let me just give you a little more background here because also the Jews are probably going to hear some of this. The Jews had this idea that, that wisdom, wisdom itself, was, was co-eternal with God. In other words, that before God ever created the world, wisdom was already here. And that he used wisdom to help create the world. It almost sounds like uh, what our friends at Word of Faith teach and preach. That, well, faith was here before God created the world. And faith is a force that God himself used to help bring about creation. And and that faith is co-eternal with God. And, and so they believe that faith can manipulate God. If I say it, and I claim it, and I believe it, and I proclaim it, and you and I agree together in prayer about it, then God is hostage to our desires. And He must work. He must heal. He must give. He must render His divine will and submit my prayer of faith that's a lie but it all comes from within the church it's not from outside the church it is amazing that the Jews believe that the Greeks on the other hand opposite from the Jews in some ways but they believe that well before there were any gods and they, they were polytheistic believed in multiple gods before there were any gods they believed that there was a force in the universe I don't know why that word is so powerful but there was a force there was a force in the universe that held everything together and they couldn't quite put their finger on what it was but but you know how the Greek philosophers were. They would sit and wonder for hours, why is it the water stays in the river? Why doesn't it just jump out and go somewhere else? And they'd think about that for a week. And so they started to look at the world and they said, we believe that there is a force that holds all of the world together. And guess what they call that force? Some of you probably know. We get our word logic from it. They called it the logos. It is a word that means word. We get our word logic from it or our word logo from it. And when John writes his gospel, he says, yeah, I'll tell you about the logos. He says, in the beginning was the logos because the logos was God. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, 
And for you Greeks that think that God has nothing to do with matter, everything that has ever been created was made by the Logos, and nothing that has been created uh, or, or nothing that exists in this world came about any other way other than God himself. But you see the turmoil we have. And I understand that I doubt we have very many here that are planning to turn to Gnosticism. Perhaps you discussed that on the way to church today. I don't know. But I doubt it. But here is our problem in our world today and in our church. When we look and say, what child is this? And we don't realize exactly who he is and why he came. And what that means for you and I, then we begin to come up with a lot of crazy ideas ourselves. And we're just like the Gnostics. We get to where we decide that, well, you know, he came as a savior, but that doesn't mean everybody's bad. I think there's some good in everybody. We love that. We love that humanitarian theology where, oh man, I just like to look for the good in people. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but you, you, if, if we're going to preach the gospel, let's preach the gospel. If we're not, let's just don't and call it something else. Let's call it a feel-good club and meet on Tuesday nights. But if we're going to preach the gospel, let's preach the gospel. And the gospel is we were lost and undone and we needed a Savior. We didn't need God to come down here and be an example or to teach us some truth. Uh, we had been taught till we were blue in the face. What we needed was a Savior because without a Savior, we were desperately lost forever. And anybody that doesn't know him, they are lost and they are lost forever. And that's the gospel. And that's what we need to be preaching. So I want us just take a look this morning at what child is this? Who is this that's lying in this manger? Oh, I know Christmas is a beautiful, beautiful time. I love it. I love it. And I think we'll love it a lot more as believers if we better understand exactly What's going on? You know, one of our favorite verses is Christians often leads us astray. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And people take that word to mean sometimes, well, he gave birth to Jesus. No. Monogonase is the word in the Greek. And I know you're probably not wanting to hear a lot of that today. <laughs> but monogonase is the word. And where begotten in the old English would mean someone who's given birth to or created an existence for someone else. Mono means only, and genes is the word we get our word generation or to generate from. And monogonase is a word that meant to share uh, the same identity and nature with something. So begotten sort of misses it. It's not saying in John 3.16 that God gave birth to Jesus or that God saw that Jesus would come into existence. I hate it when I hear people say that, well, you know, I believe in the virgin birth because, you know, uh, without the virgin birth, Jesus wouldn't be divine. I, I want to tell you, I believe in the virgin birth, but please understand this. Jesus was divine before Bethlehem was ever a city. He is eternal. He is God. That is what child this is. He is God. He shows us this in three ways. One's through his sovereignty. Through his sovereignty. First of all, he shows his sovereignty in verse 16 in his creation. It says, for by him all things were created. It was through that part of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that everything was made. John has already taught us that. But it's not like Jesus shows up later in Bethlehem around 6 B.C. No, 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 no. Jesus was there from the very beginning. He was with God and he was God. And John makes all of that clear. It was through Jesus Christ that everything was made. And everything was made by him and everything was made for him. It's incredible. 
But he said in his creation he shows his sovereignty. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth. Visible and invisible. And yeah, the Gnostics had this big deal about, well, there's all this, this hierarchy of angels and demons and all of that. And all of it's really, really complicated. Unless you're real intellectual like us, you'll never understand it. And Paul says to them, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. No, it didn't come from out of nowhere. God created it. God created it. He showed his creation or his sovereignty in, in creation. Uh, it, it's an in, incredible thing uh, for us to understand that God's sovereignty, I mean, he took nothing and made everything. Uh, I, 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 I love science, and, and I think too often and needlessly so science is pitted against theology, but, but I, I love to read, and uh, I, boy, I, I, I can barely understand what I read, but Occasionally, I'll read some uh, book about uh, uh, theoretical physics, and I like reading about it because they deal with things, sometimes little particles. I believe they're called muons, okay, and if that's not right, just laugh. I don't care because I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm not a physicist by a long shot, but I love reading about those little muons. They don't behave like they're supposed to. And the physicists are, I mean, they have meetings over this. How would you like to have a life that, that exciting? We've got a Muron meeting Tuesday. But these little particles don't act right. There's something about them that, that, that don't, they don't obey the normal laws of physics. When they're spun in a certain direction, uh, they, they don't continue in that direction the way that they're supposed to. They defy the very laws of physics. And then the Physicists, and I'm not making this up, they say there appears to be some kind of unseen force in the universe that is controlling all of this. And I'm like, I want to come to the meeting. They wouldn't listen to me. And it's okay. God never intended to be found in a microscope or a telescope. That's not how he revealed himself. He came and became flesh and lived among us as Jesus Christ. He says, you will accept me that way or you won't find me any other way. He shows his sovereignty in creation. He also, in his church, in verse 18, he is also the head of the body of the church and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come and have first place in everything. He is the head of the church. He's the head of the church. Everything operates from the head. In the human body, the rest of the body serves the head. That's where the operation, that's where the, when I tell this hand to move and this arm to move, that's where all of that comes from. It's hooked to a nerve center and um, unfortunately I have experienced having a part of your body a significant part of it disconnected from the brain and I watched it lie there in my lap dead and motionless I could feel nothing in it and it would not take orders it had disconnected itself from the rest of the body and I'll just tell you this it didn't fare real well as a matter of fact uh, it finally died so quickly that it was no longer useful to the body. You remember that the next time you decide that, hmm, I think we're going to kind of get away from this organized religion. I don't know how you could possibly be a part of this service this morning and call this organized religion. I mean, we started out with ready to sing this morning and all we got was pops and crackles out of the sound system and and it's not their fault, my son's back there and all of that. I mean, we, we got all of that kind of stuff happens. It happens all of the time. I, I, don't, I don't think it's the organized religion thing that people have a problem with. 
when you have to deal with a body, you got to you you have to. There's some submission involved in all of that. Christ is the head of it, and then the body has to move together with all of these other parts. And I'll just be honest with you, and I'm going to move on from this, but I can just tell you, I think a lot of times what happens to people, instead of getting this big independent spirit and going out and deciding, I want to be a purist and start having church at the house or whatever, and I know they had church at homes in the early church, I got all of that. But I think what happens a whole lot of times is the rest of the body just gets on that part of the body's nerves and it decides I don't want to be here anymore because I can tell you right now we will get on your nerves we're good at it just how we grow here's where you learn to submit here's where you learn to take criticism here's where you learn to be told what to do instead of telling everybody what to do you come to this house it's not your house this is God's house you don't get to come in here and say well I want it this way or I like it that way or I think you know I want something that kind of reflects my personality you can have all of that at your house this house is God's house and we want this house to reflect God and I think sometimes that gets on our nerves so badly that a lot of people just can't handle it anymore well his sovereignty is seen in creation in his church Secondly, his supremacy. He says he was supreme in that, first of all, he precedes all things. He is before all things. You remember we've taught here before that the Jewish people believe that the older the scholar or the older the rabbi, the more authority he had. Well, Paul is telling us here that he was before everything. He was before there was anything. Uh, it's, it's not just like he's the oldest person in the room. There was nothing before him. He is, he, he is, he is uh, uh, supreme in the fact that he's before all things. And when it talks about him being the firstborn of, of God and the firstborn from the dead, don't take that and give it too much significance as far as time is concerned. Because it's not about time. In that culture, it was, uh, again, one of those idioms that they would use. They would talk about the firstborn of something. It wasn't mean you were first as far as chronological order. It would mean you were first as far as honor is concerned. And when it comes to honor, there is nothing that is to be honored more than Jesus Christ. So in that, he is... First, he precedes all things. He sustains all things, verse 17. And in him, all things hold together. Man, one of the things that I enjoy about science is when you study this universe and you realize, boy, how volatile it is. I mean, you, you think about it, and I know it's an old illustration, but, and I know I've used it before, but uh, this is hydrogen and oxygen. But set up differently, it's what launches the space shuttle. And it makes a lot more noise than that glass of water did. It's hydrogen and oxygen and mixed the right way it's the 4th of July buddy when I see these things these uh, nebula that my son takes these beautiful pictures of wow do you realize how much energy and all of the dynamics that's going on with all of that. Do you, do you, I mean, it's just so incredible thinking about the, the power just of our sun and that there's so many stars out there that are so much bigger even than our sun. And, and our universe is one of those things that is just so incredible. I mean, it just, boy, uh, it is amazing. If this thing ever starts coming apart, at the seams, boy, you talking about uh, 
uh, uh, something dramatic. It would be incredible. But, but God created everything, and even those things that are light years away, He's in charge and in control of every one of them. That just blows my mind. He holds it together. Now, that might not bring you a lot of comfort to know that, well, okay, he's got the universe together. But I want to tell you something. He can also hold you together. There are times that I'm not as worried about the Orion Nebulous as I am what the doctor's going to say when I go back. Just being honest, I know a lot of you worry about Orion a lot, but I don't too much. I worry about me. I think about my kids that are going to be driving four hours tomorrow to get to our house, my three little grandbabies. I don't know what's wrong with this generation nowadays. They buy these little old bitty cars. I'm like, buy Buick, man. Let them know you're coming down I-40. I was raised in a, we had a car that the door weighed more than a Honda Civic. I worry about them. I have to put them in God's hands. I have to let him hold them together. There's probably parents in here right now that you're thinking, boy, I wish my kids were coming home for Christmas. I wish they even cared about Christmas. I wish they even cared about God. I can tell you, God can hold all that together too. Keep praying. Keep asking God to do a work. Because sometimes when it looks like chaos... I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in my home, too, where God steps in and he brings calm and organization and, and reason to purity chaos and peace where there was no peace. And God can do that. I want to get to the last point. He shows us who he is in his sovereignty, his supremacy, and also his salvation. We'll look at three things and we'll close. In his salvation, Paul talks about one, he brought his salvation through his resurrection, verse 18, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the most honored, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. First place in everything. Man, he came and entered our world, came and lived in this world that you and I live in and, and, and left heaven's glory and came here and lived among us and died. And I mean he truly died. But then he was raised again. He was resurrected from the dead. He has victory now over death. And, and I would remind you that nothing's more final than death. I know sometimes in our life circumstances get bad and, and, and maybe we're running really low on hope, but He has already shown us that He can even overcome death. As a matter of fact, He even mocks it. He looks at death and, and, and it's almost as if He laughs when He says, where is your sting and, and grave this victory? that you have had where is it you've held it over humankind all these years death the greatest enemy that humans face where's that sting now and where is that victory now because I have overcome it and if we put our faith and trust in him then we too one of these days will be raised to live with God forever that's awesome his resurrection. Secondly, his redemption. Verse 21. And although you were formerly, formerly alienated and hostile in mind. He's talking to the Gentiles here. 
He said, you didn't have any hope. You weren't part of God's people. You weren't Israelites. You weren't Hebrews. You weren't Jews. You weren't part of the people of God at all. You had zero hope. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, that took place at one time, but God has regener- or, or, or redeemed you. And when he says redeem, redeem means to pay a price for something to set it free. God says, I set you free. You were slaves, Gentiles. You did horrible things. I mean, we Jews, yeah, we were arrogants and bigots and and we were religious heretics sometimes. and, And we did some bad things. But he says, you Gentiles, you did things that were unheard of. You did horrible things that... That, that you would think would be unforgivable. You were just absolutely detestable in your lifestyles. He says you were alienated from God. But God has paid the price to redeem you, to set you free from that. Man, if our world ever needed a message ever needed to hear that God can set you free. Boy, they need to hear it now. This is just one issue, but I thought it was interesting. This is the first year that I've heard of this. But this past year, more people died from fentanyl overdose than cancer, than car wrecks. It was the leading cause of death for humans in this country between the age of 18 and 45. We're probably going to close out the year somewhere around 100,000. If you put it in perspective, you think about it. If we were at war with somebody and they had killed 100,000 of our soldiers this year, I think it would be pretty evident that we're in a war, wouldn't you think? If we lost 100,000 Americans? Don't you think we'd be uh, working on whatever we need to do? to shore up the problem, to to try to find out what's going on, to get in the middle of that. Man, we'd have tanks on this hill and and jets flying over that, that desert or whatever it is. We'd be doing something. Well, let me just tell you, most all of the fentanyl that comes into this country is manufactured in China and sent to Mexico and comes right across the border. Oh, yeah, I know we're having this big fight about tear that wall down and Jesus wouldn't want a wall and all of that. I'm not even, I don't even care. If I make you mad today, I don't care. I am telling you we are at war. And if we don't wake up and realize it and quit politicizing everything and trying to gain brownie points with everybody by trying to be Mr. Humanitarian of the year and deal with a problem. Man, I want to tell you something. This thing's going to get to the point that we may never, ever get a hold of it. And it may be there now. We're at war with China. I guess we need to just have an announcement. Wake up one morning and somebody say, hey, we're at war with China. Did you hear? China attacked us this morning. Now, they attacked us a long time ago, and we've been trying to buddy up to them. They're like this big alligator in the room that, that, that our politicians are sitting around trying to pet to see which one he'll eat last. It's incredible what's going on, and we, we have so politicized these kinds of things. I, and, and just this year, let me just give you this. They have already, and, and the year's not over. But we have already confiscated. This is not counting what got through that we didn't even see. We've confiscated 11,000 pounds of fentanyl at the border. You know how much it takes to kill you? Two milligrams. Now, I'm not good at math. But thank God for Google, right? 
in one pound, there is 453,592.3 milligrams in one pound. It only takes two of them to kill you. And we've confiscated 11,000 pounds. How much is here that we don't know about? Last of all, he showed us his salvation through his resurrection, his redemption. Last of all, through his reconciliation, verse 22, yet he has now reconciled you, you Gentiles, He's reconciled you in his fleshly body. He did come and die. That's a shot at the Gnostics. Oh, yeah, he had a fleshly body. And he came here and he lived. And he died. And he has reconciled us through his death in order to present you, you Gentiles, before him, you worthless Gentiles, you depraved, animalistic Gentiles, so he could present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You mean one day, say it's not so. I'm going to get to stand before God, blameless? Blameless me? Man, we shy away from things like that. We don't like to talk about being blameless before God because we, oh, well, I wouldn't say I'm blameless. Well, then you need to meet the Lord. Well, I don't, I, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm blameless. We all got blame. When it comes to us being presented before God Almighty in the eternal realm, if we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior and have put our faith and trust in Him, then we receive His righteousness as a gift of grace. And then we are blameless before God don't shy away from that we know you're not talking about you I'm so tired of people going well I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say you know I'm totally blameless 100% righteous I, I'd never say that why not because it's not about you do you think you need to remind all of us how bad you are we know We've known you long enough. We know already. We know it's not about you. Quit acting like it's about you. Stop with that fake humility and embrace what God has given us as a gift of grace. Stand up and say, I am blameless before God and no, I don't deserve it, but it is by His grace and His grace alone. Yeah. I remember preaching that one time and a man interrupted me in the middle of the sermon and shook his finger. Pretend there's one there. Shook his finger from about the second row and said, there's none righteous, no, not one. I just wove him right into the sermon. I said, you're exactly right, brother. There's none righteous, not on our own. Not one single one of us is righteous on our own. It is a gift of grace by God himself. And when God gives us his righteousness, how righteous is God? That's the gospel. That is the gospel. As I close this morning, I want to tell you something. The gospel is a precious thing. But it's under attack. And just like Gnosticism, it's under attack from within the church. And let me tell you, it's bigger than you think. It's bigger than I thought. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I have seen some articles and read some things that I've heard people say that I'd have never in my life believed that I'd have ever heard that man say that. Professors and pastors whom I've read their books, they've inspired me. Now they break my heart. 
they break my heart. If I name some of them, and I, I, I'm not, I, I just, I will when the time is right. But I, I'm just telling you, I could name names right now that I'm, I'm seriously concerned about. And you'd know every one of them. Because what we've done, instead of realizing that the gospel is about all of us being sinners and having sinned against God, and that each of us are individually responsible to God, the gospel now is being turned into this social justice. See, biblical justice is we're all guilty. And we're all guilty because we're sinners before God. And we are accountable to Him. But it became so popular, I cannot believe some of the very leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention that have embraced the notion that our problem is not biblical justice, but it's social justice. And that we need to ask other people to forgive us for the color of our skin or for where we were born or for things that happened that we had nothing to do with. That is a very popular heresy. It's called critical race theory. Man, it's infiltrated our churches. Oh, I, I've always known about Theologians like James Cone, that was liberation theologian. Um, Gutierrez, he was the father, I guess, of liberation theology from South America. I, I, I read their books, Gustav Gutierrez. I, I had to study them when I studied theology in undergrad school. I've always known about them, but man, I'm going to tell you something. The gospel is under attack. The gospel's under attack. We need to be able to stand up for it. I'll close today. I want to tell you, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, man, don't, don't let this year end. Don't start another year without Jesus. Draw a line in the sand. And maybe you're here and you are a Christian, but you know that Man, I have just never really laid the gauntlet down. I have never really driven a stake up and said, this is it. From now on, I'm serving God. Not just 10%, but everything I own is going to belong to Him. And I'm going to live my life in a way that shows that everything I have belongs to Him. I'm going to get serious about following Him because I can tell you, the things in this world that look so bright and promising so just a few years ago all of that is coming apart at the seams. The only place we can have hope is going to be in Jesus Christ. We have to tell the world that. But we're going to have to have the conviction of it ourselves. That's why our witness is so weak. We're still mumbling around about it. And I, I know it happens. We'll go, well, yeah, Uncle so-and-so, he lives with another guy. And, and that's not right, kids. But, you know, Uncle Jimmy, he's special. He's different. He's got a good heart. No, he doesn't. He's lost. And he needs to be saved. He doesn't need for you to defend him. He needs for you to tell him about Jesus. That's what he needs. And before you go off talking about, well, you're judging, no, I'm going to tell you, I have a wicked heart too, friend. That's everybody's problem. Everybody's problem. We've got to get some conviction in our heart. Let's pray together. Lord, I come to you right now, and I thank you so much, Father. For your willingness to step out of glory. For your willingness, God, to step into this world. Lord, for you to restrain yourself when they 
slapped you in the face, when they pulled at your beard, when they misunderstood you, when all it would have taken was a just just turning a desert into a volcanic eruption, that, that would, may have opened the eyes, Lord, of so many of those detractors. But, God, you were true to your nature. It's not how you came. It's not how you want to know us. It's not the kind of relationship you want to have with us, God. I thank you, Lord, for coming and living dying for our sinfulness. I pray you'd help us, God. Help us, Lord. I pray you'd take these words today that I have spoken, and God, you know right now in my heart, I'm standing here thinking that, well, I, I, I had it laid out differently. I thought it would flow better than, than it did today. I, I, I'll go home today, Lord. You know me. I'll worry about it all evening, but it's just so hard to, to get it out today for some reason, God. It just, I, I just pray, though, Lord, that you would take the mumbling and bumbling that people heard today, and, Lord, that you would anoint those mumbles and bumbles, and, God, that you would use it to convict our hearts. Lord, start with me. I pray for revival, God. I pray that it would start right here in my heart, Lord. Help us, God, as we take a stand, as we stand for the gospel, Lord. I pray that we would do that, but that we would do it in a way that would glorify you. That we would put our faith in you and not some political party or some politician or some new idea. I pray, God, that, Lord, you just help you. Use, use this time. Use the chaos in our world to help us as your children to refocus our attention on you and you alone, God. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at ServantsWay.com or email us at office at ServantsWay.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.